You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Thanks, BuzzFeed. I needed that. I was doing a little reading when I got up, checking out my go-to news sites, thinking about what I might talk about at the top of today's show, Trump dismantling the United States Postal Service to rig the election, Trump thinking a temporary payroll tax cut that guts Social Security is what we need at a time of mass unemployment, a payroll tax cut when millions of Americans have been booted from payrolls, and then Trump sending his treasury secretary out to tell Americans that Trump will make that temporary payroll tax cut permanent if we reelect him in November because blackmailing Ukrainians didn't work out, so now he's going to blackmail Americans. Or should I open the show by sharing my truly unkind thoughts about people who won't wear masks? Oh my God, that lady at the DMV. And all those straight men, a majority of them, according to one study, who won't wear masks because they think they make them look weak. So I was reading and stressing and spiraling down into a rage when my friend Betsy rescued me with a text. She sent me a link to a quiz at BuzzFeed. Now, BuzzFeed isn't one of my usual stops. They do great work. They do great reporting. I follow a bunch of BuzzFeed writers on Twitter. No shade, BuzzFeed. But not one of my go-tos. That said, maybe I need to start stopping by BuzzFeed every day, more often, to calm myself down. Because the link Betsy sent me, it yanked me right out of the hard news rabbit hole I'd fallen in. Here are 10 different relationship scenarios. Are these people cheaters? It's a quiz by BuzzFeed staff writer Kelly Martinez. And everyone gets to vote. Don meets up with his ex for dinner once in a while. Just dinner, but he doesn't tell his girlfriend. Is that cheating or not cheating, but kind of sketchy? Only 4% of quiz takers thought Don wasn't cheating. Um, Guys, maybe Don's one of those people who's stuck with one of those insanely insecure people who's absolutely unhinged where exes are concerned. I would advise Don to dump such a girlfriend if that was the case, but not everyone can leave or should leave. Life is complicated. Sometimes you got to step around your partner's bullshit. Moving on, Barney finds pictures of other men on his boyfriend's phone. 94% of people polled thought this was either cheating or cheating adjacent behavior. And way more people thought it was actual cheating than just kind of sketchy cheating adjacent behavior. Which leads me to believe that most of the people who took this poll, 94% of them, have never met a gay man, much less dated one or been one. Marissa shares a tent with her ex on a camping trip. Nothing happens. They just sleep. Three times as many people thought that was cheating than thought it wasn't. Now, I'm pleased to say that people didn't think it was cheating when someone hooked up while they were taking a break from their partner, a break their partner knew about, and that it's not cheating if someone you're casually seeing goes on a date with someone else. But there's a lot of evidence in this poll, scientifically unsound and anecdotal evidence, my favorite kind, but still a lot of evidence that too many people still regard way too many things as cheating. And that is a problem. If we define cheating as unforgivable and then define absolutely everything as cheating, we are setting our relationships up for failure. It seems to me, it has always seemed to me that if you want to have a lot of sex, you want to have as broad a definition of sex as possible. If sex is just one thing, PIV or PIB, and everything else is a sad consolation prize, you're going to have a lot less sex than you would otherwise. And it seems to me, 
You don't want to get cheated on a lot. You want to have as narrow a definition of cheating as possible. Because if everything is cheating, you're going to dump or get dumped a lot more often than you otherwise might. What constitutes cheating is an interesting question and a subjective one. It's personal. But it's something you might want to make sure you're on the same page about before you and your partner have made hard to extricate yourself from commitments, before you've signed that lease, adopted that dog, scrambled your DNA together. And if the person you're dating, casually dating right now, thinking about committing to, regards chatting with an ex or looking at porn or having opposite or same-sex friends as cheating, do yourself a favor and end that relationship before you sign that lease. Anyway, thank you BuzzFeed and thank you Kelly Martinez for reminding me that people are crazy and that I can sometimes open my sex and relationship advice show with a little sex and relationship advice. And thank you too, Betsy. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, author and journalist Jill Filipowicz joins us to talk about her new book, OK Boomer, Let's Talk. We end up in a boomer versus millennial sex and relationship advice showdown. That is on the Magnum that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, no ads. All that coming up today. Hi, I am calling in with a quarantine slash success story. So a little bit ago, I shared with my husband my fantasy of having a threesome specifically with him and another bi guy. And luckily he was really into it too. So we made a shared FetLife account about a year ago and just never really found someone we could agree on. But just this week we found a guy who checked most of our boxes and started chatting with him. Two days ago, my husband had to go into the office for a few hours and couldn't be on the group chat with this new guy. So he told me that I could message that guy separately and have some fun on my own. I spent the entire morning sexting this guy. We sent pictures back and forth, talked about what we'd like to do when the three of us could finally meet. It was all really hot and fun. And then a few hours later, when my husband finally got home, he took me right into the bedroom and told me to go down on him while he read through my messages with the other guy. It was amazing. I would definitely chalk this up to a quarantine success. I was really nervous about meeting up with someone in person, but I think communicating over text like we have been and the three of us just getting really excited for when we can finally meet has pretty much gotten rid of my nervousness. Thank you for calling in and sharing your sexy, sexy story. Congrats on stepping outside your comfort zone. And good for you for having this completely safe sexual adventure that you've enjoyed with your partner. Hopefully your very special from afar guest star is getting as much out of it right now as you guys are. If you want to share your quarantine or sex success stories, we can start the show with something positive. Give us a call, 206-302-2064. Share your story, and we might play it at the top of next week's show. Hey, Dan. This is a 34-year-old late bloomer calling you from Europe with a kind of vague question. So a couple of weeks ago, my boyfriend and I had anal sex, and it was the first time for me. And it was actually really magnificent. I had so much fun. It was so much better than I would have expected. Afterwards... I noticed two things about myself, and I was wondering if you could give me some perspective. Number one, in the hours following, I just felt so weird. 
I felt like at the same time really introspective. I just kept like going to do something and then just staring in the middle distance for like minutes on end. But I was also like my my heart was racing and I just felt so out of sorts. So I was wondering, is that like a common response to have after getting fucked in the butt for the first time? And my second question also has to do with like side effects, but more lingering ones. So in the days after I had some pretty bad diarrhea and I was wondering, could there be some kind of connection between these two? So could it be that some bodies do not respond well to ingesting sperm in that way? Or did I just get a traveler's bug and is it completely unrelated? Would love to hear your thoughts. So you got your guts rearranged for the first time. Congratulations. And you really enjoyed it. And perhaps it's something that you didn't think you would enjoy. Perhaps it's something that you have internalized cultural messaging about anal sex and how wrong and dirty it is and that conflicts with your self-conception. And you stepped outside your comfort zone. You did this thing sexually. Maybe you did it for your partner and for their pleasure. And you discovered that you really love it too. That sometimes happens. That's one of the benefits occasionally of stepping outside your sexual comfort zones with a trusted partner. But if that's what happened, if you really, really, really enjoyed something that conflicts with your preconceived notions or your assumptions or the cultural messaging about a certain act that you've internalized, it can bring you into conflict with your self-conception. And that can lead you to staring off into space wistfully for a couple of minutes, wondering who you really are, having to reconstruct your uh, ideas about who you are sexually and what is and isn't okay to enjoy sexually. I remember walking to the Argyle L-stop in Chicago after I gave my first blowjob, staring off into space after scanning the clouds, looking for God, hanging out, <laughs> shooting thunderbolts down from the sky to kill me while my grandmother peered over his shoulder. That didn't happen. I remember sitting on the Argyle L-stop platform in Chicago, staring off into space thinking, am I who I thought I was? Is that okay? Have I stepped over? Have I crossed some Rubicon here? And indeed, I had. And perhaps you have as well. As to the other side effects, I'm thinking the diarrhea for a couple of days after could have been a coincidence. Some people have allergic reactions to their partner's semen, but you would have, if you've been exposed to your partner's semen orally, if you've been exposed to your partner's semen vaginally, if you've had it on your skin, you would have had that allergic reaction already. You would have known that your partner's semen can trigger diarrhea. There are some people who get blowjobs, their partner swallow their semen, and immediately afterwards, like 20 minutes afterwards, have the shits, and they are allergic to some enzymes in their partner's semen. It is a thing that happens. But if it hasn't happened to you before, I think it's likelier that this was a coincidence also, maybe you had a reaction to the lubricant that you used. Hopefully, you used a lot. Everyone should use a lot, a lot of lube, particularly if you've never been fucked in the ass before. You want to err on the side of buckets of lube. And there are people out there who've come to me concerned because they had anal sex for the first time and they had to run to the toilet immediately afterwards and they're concerned and coming to me about this because they were crapping out this weird mucusy substance. And I've looked at them and said, what do you think that might be? And it dawned on them the last time this happened. It dawned on that person. Oh, yeah, that's just the lube leaving the building. Exactly. 
So maybe it was the lube leaving the building. Sounds to me like Lear, a coincidence. There's a way to determine whether or not, though, this is what your body does after you have anal sex, which is that thing that you enjoyed, that anal sex that you had that caused you to revisit your self-conception. You might want to do that again. If this keeps happening, well, then it's anal sex, obviously. That's doing it. And then you might want to, I don't know, if it's a semen reaction, use condoms for anal. If it's about the lube that you've been using, switch it up. Try a different lube. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a straightish woman in my late 20s living on the East Coast, and I've had a bit of a problem since the very beginning of my sexual life. I'm really loud in bed. I love moaning and yelling and generally vocalizing my excitement. But I don't always want everyone to know that I'm having sex, and not everyone always wants to know when I'm having sex. The problem is, I don't seem to have much control over it. I try to tell myself to take it down a notch, which usually works early on, but almost always ends with me loudly lost in the moment again. I've tried yelling into pillows, but that doesn't really work for every position. It can be helpful and sexy when my partner orders me to be quiet, but I don't always want it to be on them, especially since they often like my noises and, and sometimes aren't very good at reminding me to lower the volume. Nearly every roommate I have ever had has approached me about it, neighbors have complained, and even, to my horror, family members. I was hoping you or your listeners might have some tips for keeping the volume down when you don't necessarily want everyone to know that you're currently having an orgasm. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel ashamed. Female copulatory vocalizations, a.k.a. female copulation calls, produced by all female primates, I'm reading from a research paper here, including human females, because, of course, we are primates. There are theories about when women make these vocalizations, these copulatory vocalizations that are louder, typically, on average, than men are during sex. Some of those theories point to us being a non-monogamous species, that the woman is screaming and yelling because she's capable of having many, many orgasms and wants sperm from all the best males in the vicinity and the dude she's fucking now that she's screaming with now he's gonna fall asleep after he has his one pathetic little orgasm and then males who heard you screaming and yelling you know a mile away will know that they can drift towards you and you might be ready to mate with somebody else who may have superior spunk for you anyway i digress what can you do about your terrible horrifying situation you can warn your roommates when they move in that this is just a fact something they're gonna have to endure and if they can't endure it. They don't have to live with you. You can be cognizant of when you're fucking. If it's 3 a.m., maybe you opt for one of those positions where you can shove your face into the pillow or you encourage your partner to order you not to make a sound because it's 3 a.m. But if it's 2 in the afternoon, if it's 10 in the morning, even if your roommates are home and awake, go for it. Be as loud as the hell you want when you are making love. Hi, Dan. Straight gal living on the East Coast. And uh, I have a question about how to talk to a family member who you think is in a potentially dangerous relationship and maybe about to make some dangerous decisions. So my younger sister, uh, she's 25. She started dating a man who is 39. Uh, I found out about this relationship a little while ago. And while I was kind of like, oh, I don't love that, it's also not you know, the craziest thing in the world for those two people to be dating. So I reserved judgment until I met him. And 
I just got really, really bad vibes from this guy. Uh, he was in the Marines, but was kicked out and will not say why. He is like a professional astrologer and believes in major conspiracy theories from anti-vax stuff to that Bill Gates is trying to um, do population control in Africa uh, to that Wayfair, you know, sells kids in cabinets. He's all in on all of that stuff. Through the course of hanging out, I found out because my sister didn't tell me she was trying to be kind of secretive about it, that he is living with her. They've only been dating for two and a half months, but he supposedly lost his place and now he has moved into hers. Uh, she's told me a couple times that he's looking for a sublet, but I don't believe that. And now I have found out that she just told my parents, um, who also agreed that the guy just seemed off, that we just did not get good energy from him. Now we have found out that she told my parents um, that she plans to move to Mexico with him. Uh, that they're planning to relocate there so that she can teach yoga. They're planning to drive there. I don't even know if that's possible at this point. But the bottom line is, I'm seeing a million red flags in this relationship. I've listened to this podcast long enough to know that a premature commitment is a major sign of future abuse. And I think just the way that he has moved in with her so quickly, the way that he's trying to get her out of this country and isolate her from her entire family in the middle of a pandemic. It just doesn't sit right with me. And my parents are going to speak to her again in a couple of days. And I have been instructed to wait to talk to her until then, because she still hasn't actually told me any of this stuff herself. And I'm just really struggling with how to firmly tell her how bad of an idea that I think this is while also knowing that she is an adult and she's going to do what she wants to do, that she doesn't like to be told what to do, and that my advice might push her further into his arms if I don't deliver it in the right way. So any thoughts that you or your listeners have about what I should say to my sister would be much appreciated. Man, it is frustrating when you know someone so well and you know that if you tell this person not to put their hand down on that hot stove that they've already burned their hand on before, they're just going to press their ass down on that hot ass stove. Yeah, it's frustrating. It can feel like a waste of time, wasted effort, but the duties of sisterhood, one of the duties of friendship, sisterhood, parenthood, is to point this shit out to someone. Even if you know they're not going to listen now, maybe what you had to say will finally register down the road at some point. And if in addition to pointing out all the red flags, you emphasize that when this, if this, but when this comes to shit, that they can rely on you. They can call you. Even if they ignore your advice right now, you're not going to take it personally and you're not going to hold a grudge. You want your sister, in this case, to reach out to you. If she's in Mexico and isolated and realizes that everything her parents told her about this being a bad idea and everything you told her about this being a bad idea is true and you guys were right and she was wrong, that she can call you, you will get whatever money she needs to her so she can get her ass out of there and get home and you're not going to I told you so her. Not right away. You can have the I told you so conversation a little down the road. You know, it's been my experience when you warn someone 
not to do something and they do it anyway and you're there for them and you're helpful and you help extricate them from the shit that they got themselves into, eventually you will have an I told you so conversation. But for it to be a constructive one, usually the person that you told so has to initiate the I told you so conversation. They will come to you at some point and say, you were right. And then you can gently walk them through why you were right and what it is about them and their personality or their blind spots that prevented them from seeing what everybody else could see and not to make them feel bad about what just happened, but so that in the future, and this is what you should say to your sister when you get to that I told you so conversation, if you get there, red flags are not always determinative. Sometimes you spot a red flag and it's legitimately a red flag moving away after knowing someone for three months to Mexico where you're going to be isolated. An abuser would do that, but people who aren't abusers have also done that. But if you get there, if you get to that I told you so, it's not about rehashing the past and assigning blame or guilt. It's about telling your sister, you know, you have this blind spot and what you need to do in the future is maybe listen to us, weigh what we have to say and take into account past experience and your inability when you're smitten, when you're really in love to see those red flags, rely on us to help point them out to you. Maybe it'll work. Doesn't always work. Some people are blind to it. You say that your sister doesn't listen to people and does the opposite of what anybody tells her to do. I know people like that and you can warn them until you're blue in the face. You can warn them until you're out of oxygen and on the floor gasping and it'll never work. And if that's your experience, well, at a certain point, maybe you're off the hook and you don't have the duty to warn. I think you have a responsibility to. Though I think you should say something to your sister. You could just play this call for your sister. Play your head part of this call for your sister. You say it all very well in the call. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a gay male, my late 20s, in a monogamous relationship of almost four years. And I have a question about webcam chatting and chat rooms. So before my relationship, I really got off on going on webcam chat rooms and broadcasting myself. And just, yeah, telling guys what to do, having them tell me what to do and all that good stuff. Uh, once I got into my relationship and I was in the honeymoon phase, I kind of forgot about them. But uh, since quarantine has started, I've had a lot more time on my hands. And I found myself going back on that, on those uh, webcam chat rooms where I broadcast myself. I don't know if this makes a difference or not, but I'm not getting compensated for this. It's just like literally just camming. And I'm wondering if this is something that I should bring up with my partner or if it's something I can keep to myself. Uh, in the past, he's mentioned that he would never want to open up the relationship. So I'm scared that me camming with other guys is some sort of opening uh, openness to a relationship. So what's your advice on this? Should I talk to my partner about this? Can I just be my personal, private, sexual thing? It can be your personal, private, sexual thing. Sounds like it already is your personal, private, sexual thing because you're doing it. You've already started doing this again without your partner's consent. And I think the reason you haven't gone to your partner for permission is because you know you won't get it, that he's going to tell you no. And so you're backing into one of those circumstances in a relationship where eventually you're going to have to ask for forgiveness because you didn't ask for permission. I'm with you. I think people have a right to a zone of sexual autonomy. And I don't think one person can be all things to another person 
sexually and having an outlet like this, which allows you to have erotic experiences and engagements with other men that doesn't involve any physical contact, puts your boyfriend at no danger of contracting an STI. Most of the people that you're going to meet up with on a volunteer cam or site are going to be far, far away from you. So you're not going to be tempted to meet any of these guys in real life and they're not competition and they shouldn't exercise your boyfriend's jealousy bone or whatever his issue might be with something like this. But early in the relationship, he made it clear to you that he would never want to open it. And it doesn't sound like you guys had much of a conversation about how he defines open and what he defines as cheating. These days, a lot of people define a lot of things as cheating, and then they come to me and complain about how they've been cheated on in every relationship that they've ever been in. Seems to me that if you want to have a lot of sex, you want as broad a definition of sex as possible. We talk about that a lot. And if you want to not be cheated on constantly, you want as narrow a definition of cheating as possible. So I wouldn't count this as cheating myself. I'm not your boyfriend though. And so you are setting traps for yourself. You're, you know, seeding a field that you're dancing in with this guy with landmines. And eventually you're going to step on it because even if you're only camming with guys on the other side of the world, what are the odds that he might know one of these guys? Somebody might recognize you, know that you're in a relationship with him. Some friend of his sees you. It gets back to him. Somebody is being an asshole and without your consent, recording these cam sessions. And if your face or identifiable tattoos are in them, they end up on the internet and your boyfriend stumbles over them. A year or two out from now, maybe when the stakes are much higher emotionally or financially for you guys to break up. Yeah, I think you need to have a conversation. I think you need to revisit that conversation with him about – openness and check with him. I don't necessarily think you need to confess that you've already been doing it, but you don't want to be in a long-term committed sexually exclusive relationship with someone that you have to hide who you are as a sexual being from. So tell him that this is something that you've done in the past and that you've really enjoyed and tell him it's something you'd like to do in the future and you don't see it as cheating and then see how he feels about it. And if he does see it as cheating and it's really important to you to have this outlet, well, then one of you is going to have to pay the price of admission here. One of you is going to have to issue an ultimatum, which is usually how the price of admission around issues like this ultimately gets paid or how you figure out who pays that price of admission. If this is something that for him you're not willing to give up, tell him. If it's something that he is not willing to allow and will give you up if you insist on doing, then he'll have to tell you that. And then you both have a decision to make. Again, if you were my boyfriend, I would sign off on this happily. I am not your boyfriend. He's who you need to check with. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old gay man, and recently I started seeing someone. We have had an amazing time, and I have connected with him in a way that I've never connected with anyone before. I've never been in a relationship before. So I uh, really want this to work, and I'm excited about it. But one of the last times that we hang out, hung out, he told me something uh, that made me realize that I might be out of my depth. He basically said that he is protected by the government. Uh, because he has special abilities, and that a specific kind of mythological creature is real. 
He said that he upset a specific political candidate who is out to get him. And he also told me that the radio sends him messages that he can interpret and several other things that sounded a lot to me like maybe he had untreated schizophrenia. I contacted my mother, who's a social worker, and my best friend, who's a therapist, and I just sort of ran all of this stuff by them in a little bit more detail. And, of course, all of this is theoretical, and, of course, they can't diagnose him because they don't know him. But they did say that these things can point to schizophrenia. I guess my question for you is, how do I proceed with this responsibly? I really like this guy. And I really, I don't think this is a deal breaker for me. And I think that there's a lot of time to still figure out if this is true and how prevalent it is in his life. But I also sort of feel this weird responsibility that because he is a very isolated person and doesn't have a lot of friends and isn't close with his family, I kind of feel like if it is the case that he has any mental health issues related to these things that he told me that he might not get help if there isn't someone like me around him that cares. And there aren't really resources out there for people who are getting into relationships with someone who might have untreated schizophrenia. And of course that makes perfect sense because it's really dangerous to let people run around and maybe start diagnosing their partners uh, before knowing them. And I'm aware that I can be potentially doing that, but I just want to make sure that I'm not taking advantage of him. And I want to make sure that when this ends, if it ends, that we both leave it in a healthy place. I was tempted while listening to your call to Google, what is the non-ableist version of don't stick your dick in crazy? But I didn't Google that. I assume that there's some version of that. Don't stick your dick in unwell. Don't stick your dick in untreated mental illnesses. This guy has problems, and I think that you should listen to your mother and your friend, the social worker and the therapist, about what's going on here. They haven't met him, but this, the government is speaking to me through the radio. I'm being controlled. I have magical, mythical superpowers, and I'm being protected by the government, and yet the radio is sending me That's classic symptoms of schizophrenic mania. And while good working order is a spectrum. Someone who has untreated schizophrenia is almost the sort of definition of not in good working order, not someone that you are safe being in a relationship with. You have paranoid delusions. And right now they're not focused on you, but the longer you hang out with him, the likelier his paranoid delusions are to attach to you. And that won't be safe. You need to ask yourself, why isn't his biological family, his family of origin in his life? Why does he have no friends? The odds that he has driven people out of his life because he has an untreated mental illness are very high. There is a sort of implied consensus there. And it is sad and it is tragic. But there is an implied consensus there that the people who might be in his life, who ought to be in his life, who should be in his life, don't feel safe being in his life because he has an untreated mental illness. It speaks well to your character that you want to Help this guy. Tap your mom, tap the friend, tap the therapist, tap the social worker about what resources there are in your area for someone with schizophrenia and then perhaps have an intervention where you plead and talk to this guy about what his 
issue is. But you can't reason with this kind of irrationality. And unfortunately, there isn't much that you as the boyfriend, the brand new boyfriend, can do about it. You can't compel him to seek treatment. But you can't safely date him if he doesn't seek treatment. So the good guy thing to do in this instance, the thing that is in this person's best interest, but also in your own self-interest and to protect yourself is to present him with what resources are available. And there is not much actually, frankly, out there. We use the criminal justice system to treat mental illness in this country. And it is a sad and tragic fucking crime. Present him with what resources are available. And if you want to veil himself of them, you will have to exit his life. It isn't safe for you to stay in this relationship. I hate to be the bearer of this kind of bad news, and he isn't a bad person. He's just an unwell person. But somebody with schizophrenia often doesn't know that they're unwell and rejects all help until they reach a crisis point where help is imposed on them. doesn't sound like he's at that crisis point yet. I don't think it would be safe for you to be in a relationship with him when he gets to that crisis point. I wish we had better mental health resources in this country. It's one of the things that we don't do because we have prioritized making Jeff Bezos a billionaire over taking care of vulnerable people like this guy that you've been seeing. And that honestly, and as hard as this is to hear, and it really is difficult as it is for me to say, this guy that you need to stop seeing. Hey, Dan, I'm a 22-year-old bisexual man living in the Bay Area in California, and I had a question for you about gay dating apps. Up to this point, most of my sexual experiences have been with women, but recently I've been feeling like I want to get more in touch with the other side of my sexuality. I downloaded most of the typical gay dating apps and have been on them for a few weeks now, but honestly, it all feels like a lot being thrown at me at once. Because of my inexperience with other men, I feel like I need a partner who's willing to take it slow and understand that I might be a little bit shy or uncomfortable at times. I've only recently come out and I need to take things slow. I guess my question is, is there a good way to communicate this to somebody on a hookup app or am I just looking in the wrong places? Also, if an app like Grindr is a good place to start, do you have any tips for safety when meeting up with a stranger? Is there a good way to communicate, I only recently came out and I want to take things slow on a dating app? Yeah, you put literally that on your dating app. I only recently came out and I want to take things slow. That will attract the attention of guys who aren't in a hurry. It might attract the attention of some guys who are in a hurry. If someone responds to your app or your profile with send me a whole pic, well, that's somebody who's rushing you and that's somebody that whose message you are free to ignore and whose profile you are free to block because they obviously aren't listening or aren't reading. But yeah, there are plenty of recently out guys, plenty of guys who want to take things slow who are on all the dating apps. And Grindr isn't your only option. Grindr can be, in many people's experience, a little dehumanizing. There's Grindr, there's Scruff, there's Recon, there's regular dating apps. There are gay dudes on OkCupid and Too Many Fish. You can put multiple ads up on multiple platforms and you can, you don't want to pour too much of your heart out. You don't want to seem like a mess or a project that someone's going to have to take on, but you can put enough out there for people to know exactly where you're at. Just came out, not in a hurry. So if you are looking to 
you know, get both your fists in someone's ass tonight. I'm not your guy. If you're looking to go out on a date and maybe talk and maybe make out at the end of the night, if it feels right, I could be your guy. You can say that not on Grindr where you have to be very succinct, but on other dating apps, you can lay that out for people. And as for meeting up with people that you've only just met on a dating app, safety, meet up in public, meet up at a time when you have a something to do afterwards, so meet up in the middle of the day or meet up you know, in the early evening for one drink or a coffee before you have a, a different commitment so you have it out and see how you feel about them. Of course, the meet up in person early advice that we've given people forever about apps doesn't necessarily apply right now during COVID unless you're going to meet up from six feet away and remain six feet away. All the advice I'm giving, of course, is conditioned upon safe behavior during this pandemic. But that's the advice. Meet up in person, meet up at a time when you can't do anything else. And then if you want to meet up with that person again, you can make another appointment, make another date and trust your gut. If you don't have a good feeling about someone, leave, bolt, tell them it was nice to meet them, but you don't feel it. And if they blow up at you or are angry at you, well, you have to let that Run off your back. That's their problem, not yours. Just because you exchanged a couple of messages with someone and had coffee with them doesn't obligate you to fuck them or marry them or marry and fuck them. So good luck. You can do this. You already did it in your call. How do I say this? You said it. Just came out. Not in a hurry. Need to take my time. Want to get to know you first. All the guys who are in a hurry, who don't want to get to know you, will disqualify themselves, won't bother you. A few might bother you. You can get rid of them. And then you can meet up safely, six feet distance at that first coffee date with guys who are looking for what you're offering. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with journalist, lawyer, and author Jill Filopovich. Am I Prince pronouncing that again? <laughs> it's so tough you're close uh we want to talk about your new book okay boomer let's talk how my generation got left behind and i have to say that's gutsy using what's been called the intergenerational n-word okay boomer as the title of your new book you know it's it's provocative for a reason you know that the point of the book is that millennials essentially are responding rationally to our circumstances and those are circumstances that boomers in power largely created so if a provocative title will get boomers to pick up the book and think about some of these questions, and, and, uh, it, it works for me. I want to be clear. I'm being uh, sarcastic here. I'm not endorsing <laughs> this analysis of OK Boomer as the intergenerational N-word. Some right-wing conservative asshole said that. Uh, so what don't boomers know and why don't they know it? Oh, there's so much about millennials that boomers don't seem to understand. And they get filtered through these very silly like avocado toast memes. Um, uh, millennials, if not for social welfare programs, would be the most impoverished young people in nearly a century in America. We are less likely to own our own homes than any group of young people in nearly the last century. Young African-Americans uh, were more likely to own their homes during the civil rights movement than they are today. Student debt has increased 500 percent since boomers were young adults. College costs have skyrocketed and the value of a college degree has declined. So. A college graduate today makes about as much money as a high school graduate uh, baby boomer would have made when they were our same age. 
You know, what boomers, I think, don't grasp is the degree to which uh, millennials' really tough circumstances are not a result of us making, like, bad financial decisions or being irresponsible or, you know, deciding to major in, I don't know, interpretive dance, Um, but rather about the fact that boomers really had a path laid out for them by their parents and their elders. They grew up in an era where access to education and affordable education was radically expanding, where affordable housing was invested in, at least for white people, by the government. And then when boomers themselves came to power, they really undid a lot of that work that allowed them to succeed. And it's their kids who are paying the price for it. I have to say, listening uh, to you talk and and reading the book, I was reminded, oddly, of that uh, video that went viral uh, after the Black Lives Matter protests began, after George Floyd was murdered, or restarted after George George Floyd was murdered. There's this African-American woman, you know, talking about this target that got looted and and walking viewers through, like, everything that African-Americans have endured. And at the end, she concluded, and it was just so searing be glad we only want justice, not revenge. And when you look at what has been done to millennials financially by boomers acting sort of collectively but unconsciously to upend the system, it's amazing that you just want some social justice and not fucking revenge on the boomers. And the worst you're doing is slinging around a sarcastic, eye-rolly kind of insult. But here, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to confess, I am a boomer. Barely, like by 12 weeks, born in 1964. And in no way do I feel like a boomer. I always have felt sort of Gen X, except this I have to confess. I put myself through college waiting tables. What happened? Why is that impossible for younger people, for your generation to do now without, you know, put yourself through college without accruing a mountain of debt? What the fuck happened? Right. I mean, you know, my, my dad, who's a boomer, put himself through law school by working in the Chicago steel mills over the summer. And that covered his tuition. You know, I took out loans to pay for law school. And by the time I graduated, I was you know, close to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt. Um, you know, there's no uh, <sighs> re, you know, <laughs> summer job on the planet <laughs> that's going to pay that tuition. Um, you know, with the student debt stuff, a couple of things happened. Uh, There were major disinvestments uh, in public education. There was um, essentially the Sally May and student loan companies went private and they gained the ability to uh, essentially loan as much money as students were willing to take out. Um, And then, you know, colleges kind of in turn could charge whatever they wanted for tuition. Um, Federal and state governments uh, began to offer less in grant funding for students, so free money. And instead began you know, framing student loan pa- student uh, aid packages around loans instead of grants. And so all of this you know, added up to tremendous uh, student debt costs. And at the same time, you have this huge flood of young people who are going to college because all of a sudden you need a college degree to even make a living wage in the U.S. I sometimes think Americans just don't know. It doesn't have to be this way. And it's not this way all over the world. I have a really close friend uh, who was getting his PhD. And I just, you know, as an ignorant American, asked him, like, what kind of, what are the student loan rates like in the country where you live, where you're getting your PhD in Europe? And he looked at me like I was insane and said, I'm, the government is paying me to get a PhD, to stay in school and get a PhD. I'm not taking out loans. And I just sometimes think we're all so screwed by this system, whether it's the healthcare system, uh, education, housing we're all so screwed by these systems that we 
and we don't realize it doesn't have to be this way, not just for millennials, but Gen Z, Gen X, boomers, anybody. And yet it is because boomers. Right. And because of political choices that boomers have made, um, you know, a lot of this, frankly, goes back to Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, the historian Rick Perlstein has a book coming out about Reagan also mid-month, and I probably shouldn't be pitching anyone else's book but mine. But, um, you know, what he, he uh, the book is brilliant. And something that I tried to go back to in my book is the, the, the degree to which 1980 really was a huge turning point. Reagan was the first uh, boomer elected president, although he obviously wasn't a boomer himself. And that was really the point where you start to see not just the cost of education skyrocketing, but you see the cost of healthcare skyrocketing while you also see healthcare outcomes start to diminish, right? So that's when the U.S. really splits off, for example, from Western Europe, um, where you see healthcare costs, you know, leveling out and you see healthcare outcomes increasing in the U.S., we have the opposite effect. Um, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, 1980 is also the first year when millennials start coming into the world. Um, you know, and millennials would become the most racially diverse adult generation in American history. And so much of this, you know, is tied to, yes, decisions that were made by this boomer elected president, by conservative politicians, but also these long seated choices around racial discrimination, um, you know, outright racism, and then the sort of more subtle discrimination that, we, that we've just baked into American society that we really now see kind of coming to fruition with this much more diverse generation. Millennials are constantly accused of having killed things. You have a list in your book, diamonds, department stores, bar soap, beer, marriage, the cruise industry. I didn't know coronavirus was a millennial. I thought it was Gen Z, but there you go. And at the bottom of the list of things that millennials have killed, sex in parks, I hadn't heard that one. When did millennials kill sex in parks? And how come the dick zombies in the park near my house haven't gotten the memo? <laughs> that was a new one to me, too. I mean, apparently everybody was out having sex in parks in the 80s and 90s. And millennials are alleged to have killed sex generally, um, which is interesting. You know, we're the same generation where there was tremendous panic about hookup culture and, you know, teens having rainbow parties. Rainbow parties, and, I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> right? There was this, like, whole industry of, like, moral panic over millennial teenage sex, which has now flipped into uh, an industry of moral panic over millennial adult lack of sex. The sex um, recession. You're all at home The sex recession, exactly. And, you know, the lack of procreation and the baby bust. Um, so, you know, I, there's one thing that characterizes the conversation about our generation. It's that no matter what we do, we're, we're doing it wrong. Who can afford to have a fucking baby? A mountain of student right. debt. Housing is unaffordable. Healthcare is unaffordable. Who can have a fucking baby? That's what I don't understand about social conservatives. They want everybody married and have babies and they make marriage and having babies just financially impossible for everyone who isn't a billionaire who benefited from your last tax cut. Right, exactly. And, you know, without things like universal childcare, what are you supposed to do when when you have a job? I mean, men have always had women as their universal childcare, right? Uh Um, And now that women work outside the home, and many of us would like to keep doing that, um, you know, either out of necessity or desire or a combination of the two, there's been no uh, sort of social political catch up, uh, you know, to make to make that happen the way that, again, there has been in much of the rest of the wealthy and developed world. So uh, there's a long list of things millennials have killed. There's just one item on the list of things boomers have killed, and that's the planet. (laughs) And sometimes I think a little bit this intergenerational rage is kind of free-floating, not 
particularly well-articulated anger about the climate catastrophe that is going to impact your generation and Gen Z a lot more dramatically than it's going to impact boomers because we are going to die in time and of our own accord rather than waiting for the rising seas to drown us, which we've condemned our kids to. That's absolutely right. I mean, millennials are looking forward to a future where you know there could be uh, 2 billion climate refugees in the world, where major global cities are going to be unlivable. And, you know, what's frustrating, I was born in 1983, and I there have, there's been no point in my entire life where climate change has not been on the radar, right? Like, I grew up knowing about this. Um, boomers did too. I mean, they may not have known about this in, you know, 1955, but by the time boomers came of age and secured political power, there was plentiful evidence of what was happening and what direction we were headed in. Mm -hmm. And they just essentially decided to, to punt. And uh, what's particularly frustrating to me now is millennials are adults. The oldest millennials are 40. You know, we're not teenagers anymore. Many millennials are running for office, they're often running on really progressive platforms, and they often put battling climate change right at the center. And it's boomers who are also, you know, boomers and, and silence are, you know, the most likely to be climate change deniers, who are the least likely to want to actually do something to fight climate change. Um, that instead of stepping back and saying, you know, maybe it's time to let, you know, these folks uh, have access to their rightful share of power, they're battling us tooth and nail. Um, and they're refusing to let the people that have the biggest stake in the future actually take the reins. And yet millennials were in love with Bernie Sanders. Square that circle. <laughs> well, I guess He's I would no say spring like, chicken. <laughs> like, look at how old Pelosi is and Biden boomers. is and <laughs> Trump is and, you know, Hoyer is. Everybody in the political establishment is 70, 80. Even, you know, Elizabeth Warren is up there. Um, I'm excited that AOC will be 35 before the next election. I would totally vote for AOC. But what explains the millennial uh, support, love for, for Bernie? How did he get a pass on the old white guy thing? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I would say that, you know, Bernie's politics are not the typical old white guy politics. Bernie's also, he's so old, he's not a boomer. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I think one thing that's actually poorly understood about boomers, and this will be my, my defense of, of baby boomers, is that they really are the most politically polarized American generation. They're much more polarized than millennials, uh, who tend to be pretty left of center. And boomers are really pretty evenly divided on the left and right. It's that conservative boomers, who are you know, mostly white boomers, have managed to amass most of the kind of formal political power, right, which is why we complain about them. But there's also a huge number of boomers who are very progressive, who, you know, like Bernie Sanders, who's a member of the silent generation, um, you know, we're part of the movements uh, against the Vietnam War, for civil rights, for feminism. And as much as those boomers have not necessarily universally triumphed politically, um, they really have won the culture. All right. I want to challenge you. You're a millennial. I'm a boomer. This is a sex advice podcast. <laughs> How about a boomer versus millennial sex advice throwdown challenge? We take a couple of questions that are a little millennial centric and yet here I am the boomer trying to answer them and see how you do. Great. I think you're going to win, Dan, because you <laughs> <laughs> I do a little I'll more experience with this, but uh, are you game? Are you up for it? You're not going to get to give much sex advice on your book tour I, for your very yeah. important book. Let's so do maybe it. This will be fun. My mom's going to love this. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old female living in the upper Midwest, and I'm calling because I just 
ended a five-year relationship with a man. Also, I'm bisexual. But um, we eloped, and it was hard to end the relationship because I care a lot about him. He's a good guy. I could see myself being with him for the rest of my life and being content. I could see us raising kids together. He's a great guy with good morals and everything. And I just couldn't really get rid of the feeling that it just wasn't really working for me. Now that I've kind of had some time to evaluate it, I'm sort of thinking I'm on the aromantic spectrum, which is something that I, I don't know, kind of rings true for me in both this relationship and other relationships that I've had before. I certainly feel affection towards people and lust, but I don't know, not this kind of like overwhelming soul entwining thing called love. I don't know. I'm just kind of starting to look into it, but it just, it does seem pretty taboo to talk about in some ways. I, the couple of people that I've had in my life that I've talked to about it just look at me like I'm some sort of, I don't know, kind of heartless psychopath. <laughs> so I'm just wondering if you have anything you'd like to say about aromanticism and what that kind of looks like for people throughout their lives when love is sort of the central tenant to happiness. Yeah, we can talk about aromanticism. An aromantic, according to the Asexuality Visibility and Education Network, is a person who experiences little or no romantic attraction to others. It's definitely a thing. Don't know what more there is to really say about it, but I wanted to uh, get you on this question or put this question to you, Jill, because aromantic, demisexual, heteroflexible, I lay this at the feet of your generation. The ever more complicated taxonomy of desire, orientation, gender, Gay, straight, by trans with some variants about individual preferences. We got on with that and did okay. Now you need a field guide. And that's you guys. That's you millennials who did that. Yeah, I'm an older millennial. <laughs> so <laughs> I tend to not, you know, not be great, um, you know, with all the kind of personal identifiers. But, but that said, look, I think if it feels useful and connective uh, to put a word to this feeling um, and, you know, put an identity to it, then I say go for it. Um, I think we could use a lot more discussion of the tremendous differences in human experience um, mm -hmm. and the degree to which we've just pared down this life script um, in a way that makes all of our worlds really small and sad and selfish. Um, you know, the, the caller, I think, is right that love is constructed as a central tenet in our society, often to the exclusion, romantic love, often to the exclusion of other relationships that are really valuable and deep and intense. You know, I'm sort of one of those few lucky people that has, that does have a relationship that feels like it's this overwhelming soul entwining thing. Um, but when I hear her talk, I mean, I hear her describing the way that I think a lot of people probably secretly feel about their marriages, right? That, you know, mm -hmm. maybe the relationship is just kind of a, I don't know, a conduit to other things that they want, financial stability, kids, a nuclear family, um, social recognition. So I, I don't think it's, quite as unusual as she thinks, although it certainly is taboo. And, you know, I think she's right that these, you know, variances in human experience and emotion um, are really important to talk, to talk about more. That was great. You're really good at this. Let's take one more. 
Hey Dan, I am 37, married, bisexual. My husband and I are swingers. We've been in the lifestyle about five years. Uh, we really enjoy it, have a great time, no drama, no issues there. So the question I am calling about is regarding some friends that we have hooked up with on and off for like four years. They are also a bisexual married couple, male, female. And so here's what happened. So Friday night, the wife was out of town on a camping trip out of cell phone service. The husband asked if he could come over for some happy hour beers in our backyard. So he did. It's really fun. Did like a socially distant COVID uh, happy hour thing. And then we excused ourselves because we had tickets to go see uh, Best of Hump Film Festival, uh, which we were really excited about. So he went home. Uh, we went downstairs and watched Hump. Uh, we were texting with him the whole time, like, oh, this is really fun. We should watch this all together next time when we can. And eventually he asked if he could come over because we told him we were getting it on to watch us have sex. So we said yes. And he came over and watched us. No touching. It's really hot. So fun. Had a great time. Everybody had fun. He went home. I was getting ready for bed later. And I thought, huh, I hope, I hope he cleared that with his wife. His wife is like not a super close friend of mine, um, but I consider her a friend and I, I wouldn't want to hurt her or hurt her feelings. But honestly, Dan, I didn't even think about it until he was gone. Uh, my husband and I in the past, we've never hooked up with single people before. We've only ever hooked up with couples or at parties. So this question of like, what kind of due diligence do I need to do if I'm hooking up with somebody else who's part of a couple without their partner? That question is really new to me. Um, my husband says, don't worry about it. It's not your responsibility to figure out what their arrangement is. It's his responsibility to make sure his wife is okay with it. So put it out of your mind. Don't think about it again. But I'm, I'm like left feeling a little bit yucky, even though we had a great time. So what is ethical behavior here? Should I be asking people in the future about their partners and how they feel? Or, you know, am I kind of off the hook for that? So, Jill, when you and your husband invite somebody over to watch you guys have sex, do you check with their partner first? <laughs> uh, my husband would absolutely murder me if I answered this question on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say that, you know, Dan, this is definitely uh, more in your pay grade. Um, but <laughs> I have to do way, You write a lot about politics, and that was a classic non-denial <laughs> denial. But I, I would say uh, to this caller that your husband is right. I think that you are off the hook. Um, but that said, if it would make you feel better to have, you know, these rules more clearly defined in the future, why not ask? Um, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking couples, you know, how they're going to manage their solo time, um, what's okay and what's not and what their obligations are. You don't have to, but you're obviously troubled by this. So why not? And you should. I mean, you don't have to. It's not your moral responsibility. But if you want to avoid unnecessary drama, to just say to the dude, you know, retroactively in this case, but in advance, hopefully in future cases, is this all right with your partner? Because if the partner finds out and the partner gets mad, married people have this tendency when they're angry at their partner for cheating, if they want to stay in the relationship, to shift all their anger the person their partner cheated with, cheated on them with, right? Not that this is cheating exactly, but you know what I mean? And so if you don't want that anger sort of being directed at you, you don't want that drama coming your way, it's worth the time and trouble to say, this okay with your partner? And make it their responsibility to check. That would be my take. 
Great. As well, an old boomer. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I have a... doesn't know anything. Doesn't know when to go away and die. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants you to go away and die, Dan. And like I told you, you're in the book. You're, you're celebrated in the book as a boomer uh, who still continues to lead the way for progressive causes. October. I was born in October of 1964. 12 weeks shy of not being a boomer, of not having to take any collective responsibility for the mess people have made of the world. My first vote, cast for president, was against Ronald Reagan in 1984. I saw the damage that he was doing uh, and opposed him, but the bastard got reelected anyway in a landslide. Hopefully that won't happen this time. Jill Filipovich, her new book, OK Boomer, Let's Talk How My Generation Got Left Behind. Thank you for coming on the show, and you give pretty good sex advice. I don't need any more competition. There are too many sex advice shows out there right now, but if you start one, I would probably listen. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan. Magnum subscriber here. I am a cis, bisexual male, 31, in a monogamous relationship with an amazing man. Uh, I'm calling you today to ask you or your listeners for some advice. The problem is not really about me, but I could see it being a problem in the future. Uh, I met the guy that I am dating in December of 2019, and since then, we have been doing great uh, with quarantine and being each other's quarantines. problem I, I have currently is concerning uh, a new neighbor that just moved into my uh, boyfriend's apartment. The new neighbor is this girl. She, they both share a, wall, a bedroom wall adjacent to each other. Um, the girl is up at all hours of the night and has tons of sex throughout the day. My boyfriend actually has recordings of it. He does like his sleep and he works from home and takes meetings from his room. So he has a lot uh, of moving around to, to do um, because he likes his sleep. So it kind of bothers him that she's up uh, all hours of the night. Uh, I've seen him actually get frustrated with this chick. Uh, he's been a Karen with the apartment management group, um, and there really isn't anything they they can do about it. I know that there's tons of neighbors like like this. Probably did this, and I probably did did this in college. However, right now he wants to make a show of our sex and make it into kind of a competition. I am more than happy to make a porn as he she listens to us in hopes that she pounds on the wall while I pound him. And I was wondering. If you had any advice uh, for dealing with bad neighbors, is this the right move? Uh, will this potentially make more stress for him or will this make our sex lives better? Any tips or pros and cons? Uh, let me know. Retaliatory sex is always a bad idea. If you guys want to make a point of how loud she is, well, you could be loud. You could pretend to be having sex and scream and yell. If you're actually having sex and you tend not to scream and yell during sex, having to remember to be someone you're not while you're having sex and scream and yell in a way you don't typically just to take revenge upon the neighbor, it's probably going to ruin the sex. It sounds like it would ruin the sex for me. But if you want to make the point that you can, we can hear you by being loud yourselves in your boyfriend's bedroom, you can do that. You can blast pornography. You can also be a good neighbor and have a conversation with this person. Terry and I once lived next door to someone, bedrooms shared a wall, and he would have sex with his partners and it was super loud and we could hear it and we were new parents and it was kind of a problem because when we could sleep, it was <laughs> rare. And we went and, and spoke to him, neighbor to neighbor, and he was mortified 
because he did not know how thin the walls were because he had not heard us having sex because we were new parents and we were not having sex. Somehow he missed the baby crying, but our baby wasn't a crier. Anyway, go talk to her. Say, you know, reasonable hours. If you want to scream, you know, if you if you make noise in your bedroom, you have an absolute right to make noise in your bedroom and enjoy yourself in your bedroom. And it's 2 o'clock, that's fine. It's 10 o'clock, that's fine. If it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you should reasonably have the expectation that other people nearby might be trying to sleep and have lives and jobs and responsibilities, that's just a little inconsiderate and – neighborhoods work uh, and you know, people living together on top of each other work because people try to be considerate. One of the ways we show consideration for our neighbors is turning up the television if they're having loud sex at an appropriate time and sort of white noising it out, not listening. And another way that we show consideration for our neighbors is if it's three o'clock in the morning and we're having sex and we're typically loud, we stifle ourselves at three o'clock in the morning. We make an effort Sometimes a sexy effort to keep it quiet. It's a nice way to shake things up for ourselves. Maybe that's all you need to do is have that chat with her. If she is an asshole about it, well, then you can escalate. Then you can get into a war of pounding on walls and blasting music. That's unpleasant. And nobody wins that war ultimately because she will just then, in addition to the loud sex that you have to put up with, she will blast the TV. She will blast the stereo to retaliate against you guys for retaliating against her for something she feels she has a right to do in her apartment. And she does have a right to be sexual in her apartment and have sex the way she likes to have sex in her apartment. There's even a song about it in Avenue Q, terrific musical. You can be as loud as the hell you want when you're making love. So. My advice always with these kinds of conflicts is to try to have the human-to-human -human conversation first and de-escalate. When Terry and I had that conversation with our neighbor, he was very considerate, began fucking the guys he brought home in his living room. And we could hear it if we listened really close, but we couldn't hear it like we heard it when he was on the other side of the wall in our bedroom. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I recently discovered a notebook that my son had in his room. Uh, I was not snooping, but I just happened to stumble upon it. And when I opened it, I found some pictures that he had drawn of bondage and a picture of a woman hanging from a hook. And she was anatomically correct and seemed to be quite happy, but it was she was definitely tied up and it was uh, bondage and quite graphic. He's 18 and um, he and I have a good relationship he and I talked about it. He does not express animosity towards women. He has had a couple relationships with women. I don't think it's a big deal, but his father, whom I'm divorced from, thinks it's a very big deal and that he should undergo counseling, which is difficult to do because he's 18 and you cannot force an 18-year-old legally to get counseling. Do you think that this is a concern or indicative of a serious issue lurking below the waterline, so to speak, and it deserves consultation with a professional? He's 18. Your ex-husband can't force him to see a counselor. If your ex-husband has some sort of financial or emotional leverage that he's willing to exploit to force his son to see a counselor. 
you can pull a fast one and go to asect.org. That's A-A-S-E-C-T.org, the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, and find on their website a sex-positive, kink-positive therapist who is willing to work with, probably will be happy to work with your son. I'm glad you had that convo with him as awkward as it might have been and you were reassured that he doesn't have issues with women. Bondage and BDSM fantasies are really common, really popular. According to one study cited by Justin Lay Miller on his terrific blog, Sex and Psychology, 21% of women and 22% of men have experimented with and enjoyed bondage as a sexual activity. So there's nothing one in five people have done what your son is interested in doing or may have already done, have this common interest, the sexual interest, this erotic response to bondage. And so long as he sees other people, not just as objects, but as human beings with feelings, he's not a fucking sadistic sociopath. This is probably in the long run going to make his sex life more enjoyable and more interesting and varied, particularly if he accepts it about himself and isn't guilted about it or shamed about it. It's the shame that often warps people who have non-normative sexual interests. You aren't shaming him. His father is. If his father somehow can force him to talk to a counselor against his will, run some interference, find a kink positive counselor for your son at ASEC.org. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy Outrisk Youth. I'm a 28-year-old female living in New York City, and my partner's mother just died of, uh, not of COVID-19, um, unrelated, but she lived in the UK and he is unable to go back for her funeral. And it's extremely painful, uh, for him. Uh, and also, uh, you know, for all of us who knew her, I would love to have any advice or consolation that you or any of your listeners can give the difficult time made more difficult. <laughs> um, I know a lot of people have lost loved ones during this time. And, um, uh, just any advice on how to support him right now uh, when things seem so hopeless. There is no secret here. What you need to do is probably what you've already been doing. And it feels insufficient because it doesn't stop the pain, but, the, this kind of grief, this kind of loss, you have to walk with the pain and walk through the pain. And you want company on that walk. And you can do that for your husband. That means listen to him, let him cry, let him cry it out. Don't try to stop it. Don't try to talk him out of feeling hurt, angry, upset. But listen to him, be with him, sit with him. And I know from personal experience when my mother died that I was just despondent. I was racked with grief. And what my loved ones did, what Terry did, was just let me have my grief. Sometimes people have this reaction to grief where they're trying to pull it away from the person who's experiencing it because they think that'll make that person feel better. They can just let go of the grief or have it yanked out of their hands somehow. And that's the wrong approach because in a way that makes the person experiencing grief cling to it because it feels delegitimizing somehow of the grief or the scale or the scope of it. So let him have it. Let him sit with it and sit with him while he sits with it. And there will be moments when, and this is how it played out for me when I was just kind of 
cried out and ready to laugh or ready for a distraction. And there's your opportunity to, to really do something. There's your opportunity to leap in, not with a distraction from the grief, with uh, something to do after a little bit more of the grief has been processed, after you've walked a little further with the grief and it becomes a lighter load. Jump in with a movie. Jump in with some fucking ice cream. Jump in with a walk or a bike ride. Something to do. And when it comes to the surface, when the tears return, sit with him again. And that is enough. It really is. It's not a solution. You know, I'm talking, it's been a dozen years since my mother's death. And I'm talking with you now about it. I'm starting to cry again because it's just surfacing the grief. And it will always be there. You know, you can't expunge it. No, you don't fully recover. It's just a part of you. And this grief over the loss of his mother will always be a part of him. And the way to help him is to honor that part of him and love that part of him. And when it surfaces, as it sometimes does, even still for me at home, to sit with him, to, to love him by bearing witness to his grief and letting him have it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old heterosexual woman, and I have a question about a lover turning selfish. I've had the same partner for five years. We're monogamous with each other, even though we're not really a couple. We're more best friends who have sex. Anyway, everything's always been great. But like in the last few months, we'll start getting into it. And in like five minutes, he'll say something like, oh, you want this inside of you? Like trying to talk dirty or, oh, you want me to fuck you now? And I'm like, yeah, maybe in a half an hour. I'm not ready. I don't say that, obviously, but that's what I'm thinking. And I'm getting resentful. And then I can't wait. I can't wait till he's done and then get him to make me come because I don't want to have PIV sex until I'm really, really turned on. So this has been a change of him becoming selfish. And I don't know how to say during sex, during foreplay, well, what's left of foreplay, or at other times, I don't know how to bring this up. Can you help? So come on. He says, do you want this inside you? Question mark. Are you ready for me to fuck you? Question mark. Those are questions. He's opening a door for you to walk through. And all you have to say is not yet. And you can say that in a, a sexy way where you're not shutting him down. You're leaving the trail of breadcrumbs for him that he has to follow that gets him into your pussy. Tell him what he has to do. I'm not there yet, but I will be soon. What I need you to, you want to fuck me? Turn it back around on him. Ask him a question in return. You want to fuck me? And he's going to say, yes, he wants to fuck you. He's ready to fuck you. That's why I asked if you were ready. And you say, yeah, well, then you have to eat my pussy for 15 minutes. You got to get me there. I'm not there yet. I'm not ready for you to get me ready, big boy. Respond. Answer the question. Answer the question honestly and directly. And if he gets sore about it, if he takes it the wrong way, well, then he doesn't deserve to have his dick in your fucking pussy. And under those circumstances where you're not turned on and is not yet pleasurable to you, you don't want his dick in your pussy. So if he gets upset when the answer to, do you want this inside you? Are you ready for me to fuck you? Is no, not yet. But in a sexy, inviting, building on that question sort of way, well, okay, well, then he's disqualified himself. Not a guy you want to fuck. Not under those circumstances or th those conditions. So answer the question. When he asks it, just answer the goddamn question. 
and be honest and direct and playful about it. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Harlena tweets, is it wrong that I've been craving camembert since at fake Dan Savage's story on this week's Savage Lovecast? I'll try not to think about it too much. That's always my strategy. When someone serves me camembert, I try not to think about it too much. Just enjoy. Frequent Savage Lovecast guest Joan Price tweets, Thanks at Fake Dan Savage for the Savage Lovecast every Tuesday. Learned about Miss V Chicago this week, Mistress Velvet, the dominatrix with her acquired syllabus for her clients, and Kendra Holiday's blog post about seeing clients during COVID, all thought-provoking. Thank you, Joan, but the thanks really should go to Nancy Hartunian. She's always done the heavy lifting around here and deserves all the credit for keeping the Lovecast coming at you during COVID. And Rebel Scum tweets, the Savage Lovecast is so ridiculously educating. Thank you, Rebel, but the credit here goes to my guests like Mistress Velvet and Jen Gunter and Justin Lee Miller and Debbie Herbenick and David Lay and Erica Moan, all the people who come on the show to educate my listeners and educate me. And a quick update. We spoke a couple of weeks ago with Chelsea from the Love Is Not Tourism campaign. That's the effort to help people who are separated from romantic partners by COVID-19 travel bans. I'm happy to report that Chelsea was reunited with her partner in Austria last week. So her story has a happy ending. Congrats to Chelsea and Luca. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast and now your response calls. Hi, Dan and everybody. I'm calling in response to the woman who called in whose brother-in-law had stolen her panties and then lied about it. Dan, I think your advice was pretty good, but something that I would add is that I think her sister should communicate to her husband that he needs to do the work of skirting his sister-in-law at family functions. I think as women, we are super, super conditioned to work around men and creepy men and borderline violent men in our lives and in the world. And that something that would be really appropriate in this situation is to shift the burden of um, accommodating onto him. So maybe it means that he agrees at family functions to never be alone in the same room with her or to give her a certain amount of physical space. And then he can become the person who needs to do the navigating rather than the woman who called. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the caller in episode 719 who couldn't enjoy blowjobs because her jaw hurt so much um, from her TMJ dysfunction. I used to have the same problem. Um, my jaw would hurt when I was going down on anyone, even the licking action, but certainly keeping my mouth wide open uh, would cause me pain. And then I tried a thing called Rolfing Structural Integration. I got a 10 series of that. And lo and behold, I could open my mouth without pain. And then about 10 years later, I discovered that not only was the giving blowjobs enjoyable and not painful, but if I hit a certain spot in the back of my throat, it can trigger orgasms in me. So happy mouth opening. This was in response to a caller that was having jaw condition that wouldn't let her keep her jaw open for a long time giving blowjobs. I feel like the world has a misconceived notion about blowjobs because of porn. Honestly, I don't think I have that jaw condition, but there's so much you can do with your mouth that doesn't involve, like, deep-throating somebody's penis. Honestly, dudes love when you tongue their balls. You can experiment with anything, just asking your partner if it feels good. 
just running running your tongue up and down the shaft. There's so many things you can do without cracking open the old jaw and taking back the whole thing. Pretty sure anyone that has a penis is just stoked to have your mouth anywhere near it. So just experiment, try new things. It's not as glamorous or as jaw-related as porn lets people believe. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Better yet, use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question. It's better sound quality. It's better for the show. Then email us your question at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. We have an announcement to make. The producers of Hump are starting a new podcast in September. It's called Five Minute Fuck. And it's going to be a showcase for your dirty stories. All five minutes or less, like Hump films, but this is audio. We're looking for erotic fiction tales, sexy true stories, or whatever you think makes a great five minutes of dirty listening. Our favorite entries will be compiled into one great podcast series. They're going to share a portion of the revenue with you, the callers whose stories get on the show. And one lucky story will be part of the 2021 Hump Film Festival program. We're going to get it animated. Go to 5min, that's F-I-V-E-M-I-N, fuck.com to learn more about submitting your sexy story. And speaking of smut, if you missed your chance to watch our 15th annual Hump Film Festival online, we are bringing it back this fall for a few encore presentations by popular demand. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets and a variety of different times. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanceSavage. Follow Jill Folipovich on Twitter at J-I-L-L-F-I-L-I-P-O-V-I-C. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy Atmosphere and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week in the installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.